It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Leonid Kulik gripped his walking stick firmly as he and his team of researchers made their way down a steep hillside in central Russia. It was April of 1927. Kulik was a mineralogist for the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Some 19 years earlier, a meteorite impact had been reported in the area. Working on behalf of the Soviets, Kulik intended to find the crater so it could be mined for valuable meteoritic iron. All along the hillside and for miles behind them, countless trees lay on their sides like matchsticks. Many were completely charred. The roots all faced the same direction, pointing the way toward what Kulik hoped would be a massive impact crater. In time, Kulik and his party came into a flattened area dotted with saplings growing up amidst the older fallen trees. But then he began to notice something odd. Some of the trees were still standing, They'd been stripped of bark and branches and were charred black, but they hadn't fallen over. As Cooley continued on, more and more of these upright trees began to appear. Soon, there were no fallen trees at all. Instead, Kulik had entered a sort of ghost forest of dead trees, standing bare like scorched telegraph poles. After what seemed an eternity, the group finally came out on the other side. Now, Kulik began to see ridges and hills covered once again in fallen trees. He was dumbfounded. What in the world had happened here? What kind of meteor leaves a strange forest at its center instead of a crater? He would spend the rest of his life trying to find out. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. 
You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In today's one-part episode, we're exploring the mysterious Tunguska event, a massive explosion that occurred in the remote wilderness of Russia in 1908. Though more than a century has passed since it took place, the exact cause of the blast is still debated. We'll first delve into the particulars of the disaster and the stories of the people who survived it. Then we'll examine the investigations and the various theories put forth to explain exactly what happened. Russia is the largest country in the world, nearly twice the size of the next closest nation. It straddles the continents of both Asia and Europe. It's so large, in fact, that its European portion alone is the largest country in Europe while its Asian portion is the largest in Asia. Together, these two halves cover more than six million square miles. Most of the nation's population is in the European end of the country, west of the Ural Mountains. Everything to the east of the Urals is called Siberia, and this region accounts for more than 75% of Russia's size. The Siberian landscape is one of the most desolate and sparsely populated regions on Earth. Today, there are fewer than eight residents per square mile. In 1908, it was less than half that. Much of Siberia is covered in a type of high-latitude snow forest called the taiga, made up mostly of pine, spruce, and other coniferous trees. The ground stays frozen during the long winters, but turns swampy in the summertime. It's one of the harshest places on Earth. It was here, in this isolated wilderness, where the Tunguska event occurred in 1908. At the time, the majority of the people who lived in the region were the Ewenki people, who lived off the land in small huts made of animal hides and bark. The closest town to the epicenter was the tiny trading post of Vanavara. It was populated mostly by Russian settlers who made a meager living as farmers, trappers, or hunters. As the cool spring of 1908 melted into a mild summer, life went on as usual in Vanavara and the surrounding taiga. But in late June, during the first week of summer, People in western Siberia began to notice strange things. On the evening of June 27, 1908, the sky seemed brighter than usual. There were also wispy clouds tinged with an unearthly silver hue. Similar reports were made across western Russia and much of Europe. There were also reports of small earthquakes, halos visible around the sun during the daytime, and glowing light in the sky at night. On June 29th, numerous cities reported an unusually bright evening twilight that seemed to last much longer than normal as the sun went down. 
A scientist at a university in Kiel, Germany, specifically noticed fluctuations in his compass readings from June 27th through June 30th. But for poor farmers like Semen Semyonov, life went on as usual in the backcountry of the Russian taiga. Semyonov lived in Vanavara and had a small plot of land where he grew cabbage, onions, and turnips during the warm months. In the winter, he hunted deer for fur, which he sold to the traders in town. The morning of June 30, 1908, dawned crisp and clear over the taiga. Vanavara sat on a bend of the Tunguska River. The village was little more than a few dirt streets built around the trading station. Already a week into summer, it was mild in the taiga that morning, nearly 50 degrees. As always, Semyonov rose early to prepare for his day of hard outdoor work. Though it was only a few minutes past 7 o'clock, the sun was already high in the sky. The late June sunrise in that northern latitude was around 2.45 in the morning. As Semyonov sat on his porch eating breakfast, he suddenly saw an immense bright light split the sky to the north. He watched in horror as fire billowed above the trees in the distance. Within seconds, he was knocked down by a wind so hot that it seemed to flay his skin. It felt as though his very clothes were on fire. Struggling to his feet, he heard thunderclaps peal across the sky like an artillery barrage. He instinctively covered his head, the superheated blast of wind still whipping around him like the breath of hell. He heard another monstrous boom and felt himself knocked to the ground once again. At that moment, his wife came staggering out of their little cabin, trying to drag him inside. A sound like a hundred freight trains roared down from the distant taiga. Once indoors, the couple huddled underneath their sturdy kitchen table, listening in terror as more blasts rang out. The ground shook like an earthquake, and the windows in the tiny hut suddenly shattered, mysteriously blowing outward and letting in the hot wind. Outside, the distant flames billowed higher and higher into the northern sky, turning the wooded landscape into a blazing inferno. About 25 miles to the northeast of Vanavara, Ivan Potapovich and his family were asleep in their small tent at the confluence of two rivers. Ivan, his wife Akulina, and a relative named Vasily were in sleeping bags on the floor. At the same time that Semen Semyonov was being blown off of his front porch, Akulina Potapovich was awakened by a noise she believed was someone shaking the tent. She screamed and woke her husband as the shaking continued. As she struggled to get to her feet, the tent was suddenly shoved hard from the outside, knocking her down. She heard a howling noise all around the tent, and the leather walls continued to shake and flap. Suddenly, she heard a deafening explosion ring out, and the roof of the tent was ripped away. A hot wind howled around her, and the sky grew suddenly bright. One of the large poles from the tent fell and injured her leg, and then she lost consciousness. When she awoke, everything was in ruins. 
there was no sign of her husband or Vasily. A trunk that held the family's dishes had been thrown several dozen feet. Shattered plates and cups were scattered everywhere. The forest around the ruined hut looked like a war zone. Trees had been knocked down and uprooted. Ground foliage and moss was on fire, and smoke rose from the fallen trees. Akulina picked her way across the forest, looking for her husband. She caught sight of their clothes, including the sleeping bags they'd been sleeping in just moments before, smoldering among the wreckage. Finally, in the distance, she heard moaning. She ran forward and found her husband between two fallen trees. One of his arms was broken, and the bone was sticking out. He was lying more than a hundred feet from where their hut had stood. Helping him to his feet, they went together to search for Vasily. They found him not far away, hiding under a fallen tree, but otherwise unharmed. They gathered what they could of their belongings and began making their way through the forest, hoping to find help. What Akulina saw that day would forever be imprinted in her mind. She later stated, On the mountains all the trees lay flat, and in the swamps some trees were standing, some were lying, some were leaning, some had fallen on one another. Many trees were scorched, the needles and moss were still burning and smoking. It wasn't our forest anymore. Where we lived, there had been dense forest, an old forest. But now, in many places, there was no forest at all. To Akalina and many others, it seemed as though the gods had attacked their peaceful existence. What had they done to anger them? Coming up, we'll explore the aftermath of the disaster and the early investigations into its causes. Now, back to the story. On June 30th, 1908, something enormous exploded in the Siberian taiga near the Tunguska River. What countless eyewitnesses experienced that day has baffled scientists for over a century. Semen Semyonov was blown off of his front porch by a wind so hot he thought his clothes were on fire. The ground rumbled like an earthquake and windows in his home shattered. Yet he was 40 miles from the epicenter of the explosion. Similarly, Ivan Potapovich was thrown 100 feet through the air and was lucky to survive. He was some 25 miles from the epicenter. Trees were tossed around like toothpicks, and countless reindeer and other animals were killed by the shockwave and fire. Amazingly, there were no confirmed reports of human deaths, though the Russian government didn't keep track of Siberian peasants. Ultimately, hundreds of people were interviewed by investigators and provided eyewitness testimony to the event. From these accounts, a general sense of what happened can be pieced together. Around 7.15 a.m. local time, a massive fireball as bright as the sun streaked through the cloudless sky. An enormous cylinder of smoke trailed behind it. It seemed to crash into the earth where it set the horizon on fire. Hot wind tore across the landscape, 
and numerous eyewitnesses described the accompanying sounds the same way Semen Semyonov did, like an artillery barrage. But it was actually a series of explosions. These blasts caused an earthquake that registered 5.0 on the Richter scale. Monitoring stations 600 miles away picked up the seismic vibrations. A Nawenki man named Chuchan was in a hut with his brother near where the Potapovich family lived. He stated, One could hear the woods falling, then suddenly the thunder hit very hard. This was the first blow. The earth began to twitch and swing, and a strong wind hit our hut and threw it. Newspapers in the region reported on the event. According to one article, peasants in a village some 300 miles away from the epicenter reported seeing a blindingly bright body of bluish-white color flying in the sky. The paper went on to state, there was an enormous mass of black smoke and a loud knocking as if from cannon fire. The buildings were trembling and a fire broke out. The villagers all rushed from their homes, screaming and crying, convinced doomsday was upon them. They believed a thunder god known as Ogdi was punishing them. After the explosion, a cloud of dust and debris covered the landscape, bringing reports of ashfall, sudden thunderstorms, and damaging hail. The debris cloud rose so high into the atmosphere that it lit the night sky all across Europe. Cities as far away as London reported such bright evenings that you could stand outside and read a book. This phenomenon was caused by the divergence of sun rays from the other side of the globe reflecting off dust high in the atmosphere. It lasted for several days across Europe. The Czech chemist Bohuslav Browner experienced the phenomenon from Prague. He wrote, The peculiar light phenomenon at midnight was seen at Copenhagen, Berlin, Vienna, and other places. At 1.30 a.m. on July 1st, I saw a peculiar, strong, orange-yellow light over the horizon. The shock wave that tore across the landscape was registered on barometric devices all across Europe. In London, the wave was actually registered twice, first about five hours after the blast, and then again a few hours later when the ripple encircled the Earth for a second time. But outside of Siberia, no one knew what had happened at Tunguska. As such, speculation ran rampant about what was causing these strange atmospheric conditions. Recalling a similar condition 25 years earlier when Krakatoa erupted, the Times of London suggested it was another volcano. But in the days that followed, no reports emerged about a volcanic eruption. The strange lights in the night skies across Europe faded after a few days. By the end of the summer, the event was more or less forgotten. Even in Russia, news of the explosion never really made it out of Siberia. In that first decade of the 20th century, the European population of Western Russia had more important things to worry about. Just a few years earlier, as many as 200 people had been murdered by the Tsar's soldiers during a labor protest at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. 
That had prompted rioting and further labor strikes, which had been put down brutally by the Tsar's government. As many as 15,000 revolutionaries were executed in the following months. Bad conditions in Russia continued during the following years, worsened by a growing political crisis in Europe. That crisis ultimately culminated in the First World War, which began in the summer of 1914, just a few years after Tunguska. With the war going poorly for the Russians, revolution broke out in 1917, resulting in the downfall of the Tsarist government. The Bolsheviks under Vladimir Lenin seized power, leading to the rise of the Soviet Union. Soon after, civil war broke out, pitting the Red Army of the Bolsheviks against the White Army of anti-communists. This lasted into the early 1920s when the Red Army prevailed. With these events and upheavals ongoing for more than a decade after Tunguska, no one had any interest in actually investigating what had happened there. In fact, outside of the native people who had experienced it firsthand, most of the Siberian population forgot all about the Tunguska event. But a chance encounter would eventually bring the incident to the attention of a scientist. He became determined to solve the mystery. Born in Estonia in 1883, Leonid Kulik was educated in Russia at Kazan University. In 1920, he went to work at the Mineralogical Museum in St. Petersburg. The following year, the Academy of Sciences asked him to find and examine meteorites that had fallen in Russia. They were hoping to broaden the scientific literature on extraterrestrial rocks. Kulik immediately went to work looking for reports of meteorite impacts in Russia. Through his research, he came upon an old report from a newspaper in the city of Tomsk called Siberian Life. The story told of a train that had driven past a meteorite impact 13 years earlier in June of 1908, around the same time as the Tunguska event. The engineer stopped the train after seeing a fireball fly low overhead. The passengers disembarked and immediately ran to the area where the meteorite had landed. Unfortunately, they were unable to examine the rock because it was red hot. The article reported that the meteorite was mostly buried under the ground, with only its top sticking out. When Kulik read this report, he knew he was on to something. Searching for other accounts of this 1908 meteorite fall, he soon discovered that virtually every detail in the original article was wrong. But that didn't matter. Clearly, something big happened in the Siberian wilderness back in 1908, and Kulik was determined to find out exactly what it was. In the summer of 1921, he set off to Siberia to begin his hunt. But finding a meteorite in the Siberian taiga is like searching for a needle in a haystack. He was eventually forced to return to St. Petersburg empty-handed, having failed to find the exact location where the event occurred. But he had gathered a lot of information through interviews, and he had every intention of going back. For the next several years, he continued looking for more clues. Then he received a report from an ethnographer at the Academy of Sciences named I.M. Suslov. 
Suslov had been interviewing Ewenki people for his own anthropological research. In doing so, he came across some reports of the meteorite explosion Kulik was investigating. One of the people Suslov interviewed was Akulina Potapovich, whose husband, Ivan, had been thrown 100 feet during the blast. Her account included a detailed description of the exact location of their tent at the confluence of two rivers. Using these landmarks, Kulik was finally able to pinpoint more precisely where the mysterious explosion had taken place. With this information in hand, he was ready to make a second journey to Siberia. It took some arm-twisting of the administrators at the Academy of Sciences, who were not inclined to trust the reports of illiterate peasants. But Kulik sweetened the pot by suggesting that iron from such a large meteor would be a useful resource for the growing Soviet Union. It worked. The Academy of Sciences agreed to fund another expedition, and Kulik set off for Siberia in the spring of 1927. They had a very small window to work in. Too early in the year, and it would be too cold to go outdoors. Too late in the year, and the ground would thaw and become a mosquito-infested swamp. Most of the population of Siberia lived in the southern region, so there were no roads into the northern wilderness. Kulik and his team had to use horse-drawn sleds to trek into Vanavara. The muddy little trading post wasn't much different in 1927 than it had been in 1908. It remained the last stop for provisions before entering the unforgiving taiga, with its frozen swampland and primeval forests. In Vanavara, Kulik had trouble finding a guide or even getting information out of the locals. They simply refused to talk much about what had happened there 19 years earlier. Their god, Ogdi, they insisted, had cursed the area by sending fire and destruction on the forest. Fear of the god's anger prevented most from talking about what they'd experienced. But Kulik was persistent. He finally found a few people who were willing to share their stories, including Semen Semyonov, and by offering supplies like flour and building materials, he eventually found a guy named Ilya who agreed to lead him into the taiga. On April 8, 1927, the team started off into the forest. They followed the Tunguska River for several days until they reached the Chamba River. From that point on, horses would be useless in the dense taiga. So they traded their horses for reindeer from a local rancher and started north into the wilderness. Two days later, they reached the Makikta River. It was here that Kulik first saw evidence of the destruction. Trees were knocked down, tangled in the dense undergrowth, pointing to the south. Many showed signs of charring. As the party continued northward, hacking their way through the otherwise impassable tangle of roots and branches, the devastation worsened. Kulik noticed many of the trees were burned near the top. He believed this was due to the meteorite flying overhead and singeing the trees with a tail of fire as it went. The party eventually reached the peak of a large hill. It looked out across a large swath of frozen swampland. Here, Kulik's guide, Elia, stated, 
This is where the thunder and lightning fell down. Before them stretched a scene of devastation unlike anything Kulik had ever seen before. Not a single tree was standing. All had been knocked over and uprooted, their roots splayed out in a northerly direction. Kulik stated, The taiga has been completely flattened. One has an uncanny feeling when one sees thick, giant trees snapped across like twigs, their tops hurled away. Continuing on his way, Kulik and his team eventually set up camp just south of a large marshy region his guides called the Southern Swamp. He preferred calling it the Great Cauldron, as he was certain he would find the impact crater there. That was why he was so surprised when, instead of a crater, he found nothing but a forest of upright trees spread across an area of about five miles. The bark and branches had been stripped away, but the trees themselves were still standing. He spent several days in the Great Cauldron, investigating the area from all sides and documenting what he found in numerous photographs. But despite his best efforts, he couldn't find the impact crater or any evidence of a meteorite at all. With his provisions running low and the weather turning warmer, he finally had to give up and return to Vanavara. Still, he'd found proof that something huge and unprecedented had happened in the Siberian wilderness. Despite his failure to find a meteorite, he was certain it was out there somewhere. He vowed to return and find it. Coming up, we'll examine Leonid Kulik's subsequent expeditions and we'll look at the theories modern investigators have put forward to explain what happened. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1927, the Russian Academy of Sciences funded an expedition into the Siberian taiga. They were on the search for a meteorite believed to have landed there in 1908. But the expedition, led by mineralogist Leonid Kulik, failed to find the meteorite or even the crater. But Kulik's investigation proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that something significant had happened there 19 years earlier. It was enough for the Academy of Sciences to approve another expedition the following year. Kulik spent most of the summer of 1928 in the swampy area he called the Great Cauldron. This was where he'd found mysterious upright trees that seemed to have withstood the meteorite's destruction. Covering a circular area about five miles wide, all the trees beyond that range were flattened with their roots pointing back towards the ghost forest. Kulik had no good explanation for that, so he simply went to work looking for meteorite fragments. Identifying a number of sinkholes that he thought might have been caused by meteorites, he attempted to excavate them. But the mud and boggy soil hindered his progress, and he ultimately found nothing. He was finally forced to give up again and return home empty-handed. Despite his apparent failure, his mission was reported widely in the international press. He was hailed as a hero adventurer who had risked his life in one of the most inhospitable places on Earth 
to solve a fascinating mystery. He later stated, had the meteorite fallen in central Belgium, there would have been no living creature left in the whole country. Had it fallen on New York, Philadelphia might have escaped with only its windows shattered, and Boston too, but all life in New York would have been blotted out instantaneously. Despite its scientific failure, the public success of the mission convinced the Academy of Sciences to continue funding research into the Tunguska event. Kulik went back to the Great Cauldron in 1929 and this time stayed for a year and a half, not returning home until the fall of 1930. Then he went back again in 1939. On both of these expeditions, he excavated possible craters, drained bogs, and bored holes deep into the earth. Despite a few promising leads, he ultimately never found proof of a meteorite of any size, or even a single fragment of a space rock. But Kulik wasn't ready to give up. He planned yet another expedition for the summer of 1940, certain that he was close to cracking the mystery. But the tide of history had different ideas. In the fall of 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. By the summer of 1940, Russia was preparing for war with Germany. As a result, the Academy of Sciences canceled Kulik's expedition. In 1941, Germany invaded Russia, and Kulik immediately joined the Russian army. That fall, he was wounded and captured by advancing German troops. He ended up in a Nazi prison camp. He died there in the spring of 1942, having never had another chance to return to Siberia. In 1908, hundreds of people saw a fireball in the sky, followed by a series of explosions. Trees were knocked down for miles. The shock wave from the impact was so enormous, it went around the entire Earth twice. And yet, there has never been so much as a pebble of meteorite rock recovered from the site. Even if the object exploded in the sky, as many were beginning to believe, it should have rained space rocks down across a hundred square miles. So where was it? The short answer is that, to this day, no firm evidence of a meteorite has ever been found. And that's not because people haven't been trying. Due to the upheavals of World War II, no further expeditions to the area were undertaken until the late 1950s, and no foreign scientists were permitted to investigate the region until the 1990s. Since then, numerous researchers have studied the area and looked at the data collected over the years, but no conclusion is widely agreed upon. Of all the theories put forward, the most popular argues that the object that caused the Tunguska event was a low-density asteroid. It was believed to have been about 120 feet across and weighed 220 million pounds. That makes it about the size of the White House. It flew into Earth's orbit at about 33,500 miles per hour. When it exploded, the force was about 500 times stronger than the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. This theory explains much of the data collected over the years, 
Most importantly, it accounts for the lack of meteorite material and for those mysterious upright trees in the ghost forest Leonid Kulik first explored. According to this theory, the asteroid hit the Earth's atmosphere at a very low angle of deflection. This is the reason why it didn't detonate on contact with the atmosphere, as most space rocks do. Instead, it skimmed through like a stone on a pond. Speeding through the upper atmosphere, the asteroid's shape caused an enormous amount of drag against its surface, heating it into a fireball. Because of the low-density composition of the asteroid, it was unable to withstand the immense heat, and it exploded. The artillery barrage reported by so many eyewitnesses indicates that not just one, but many explosions occurred. This broke the asteroid up into virtual dust before it impacted the Earth's surface. The explosive airburst caused by this process left a blast pattern similar to what is seen with a nuclear detonation. The pressure from above descends vertically, stripping trees directly below the blast of their branches and vegetation, but leaving them upright. Then, as the blast radiates outward and starts moving horizontally, trees farther away from the epicenter are knocked down like matchsticks. In the case of Tunguska, an estimated 80 million trees were felled by the blast, covering an area of more than 800 square miles. But not everyone has accepted this theory. Instead, many have suggested that the object was more likely a comet, which differs in composition from asteroids. Asteroids are large rocks, most commonly found in the area between Mars and Jupiter. As the solar system formed, Jupiter's gravity pulled in leftover rubble and left an enormous asteroid belt in its wake. Sometimes those rocks collide and knock pieces of debris out of orbit, which eventually find their way to Earth. Comets, on the other hand, are deep space travelers that are made up of ice, dust, and gas. These features are what give comets their famous tails. It also means that when comets hit the Earth, they burn up easily in the atmosphere, more easily than a typical asteroid. Furthermore, since there is very little rocky material in a comet, this would provide an explanation as to why the Tunguska event left no debris. It's worth pointing out that a comet called Anki produces a meteor shower that occurs every year at the end of June. That's precisely when the Tunguska event occurred. Vaporized ice and dust from the explosion could have been the cause of the nighttime glow experienced across Europe after the blast. This would also explain the strange phenomena experienced in various European cities before the blast, like unusual lights in the sky and long twilights. These phenomena could have resulted from electrical disturbances in the atmosphere caused by the approaching comet, something that wouldn't happen with a rocky asteroid. Still, other theories have been put forward over the years, some more outlandish than others. A few scientists have theorized that a form of underground volcanism could have produced a gigantic gas eruption that led to the blast. Theoretical physicists have suggested that a small black hole impacted the Earth and moved through it, 
exiting out the other side. Even more far-fetched is the theory that the Russian government was already secretly in possession of a nuclear weapon in 1908, and the Tunguska event was the first successful test. According to this fringe theory, the science was lost in the chaos of the Russian Revolution and the subsequent civil war. Whatever happened, the Tunguska event was the most intense Earth impact by an extraterrestrial body in all of recorded history. Had it occurred near a major metropolitan area, hundreds of thousands of lives would have been lost. In fact, several large cities are situated along the same line of latitude as Kulik's Great Cauldron. Had the object entered Earth's atmosphere just a few hours later, it could have hit places like St. Petersburg, Oslo, or Stockholm. Modern observatories monitor near-Earth objects in an effort to stay ahead of the curve and identify any potential killers. But that monitoring is limited to objects that are considered a threat to the entire planet. Observatories aren't equipped to detect objects the size of what hit Tunguska. Though such a rock would be large enough to destroy a city and its suburbs, it would be too small to be caught by telescopes. And even if such an object was detected, there would be nothing we could do to divert it. Shooting down meteorites with nuclear weapons is the stuff of movies, not real life. NASA's planetary defense website states, an asteroid on a trajectory to impact Earth could not be shot down in the last few minutes or even hours before impact. No known weapon system could stop it because of the velocity at which it travels. Tunguska-sized meteorites are believed to impact the Earth on average at least once every 300 years. So while we may have up to 200 years before we see another Tunguska event, the reality is that it could happen any day. And if it did, there would be nothing we could do about it. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, Tap Browse and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Scott Christmas with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>